If anybody needs a Bible, Richard got back up, and so uh, just raise your hand and he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Jeremiah chapter 49 and 50 tonight. So we're close. There's a bug on my... Sorry. (laughs) Delete. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm just going to pray tonight. That's my fear. I'm going to do something to delete my whole study. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 49 and 50 this evening. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this night tonight, for this sweet time of worship, for Kenny and Monica being here. Lord, what a blessing it is to our congregation. We pray for your for their family back home, Lord, their children, that you just keep them safe and bless them. And, uh, Lord, the church that, that there in, in uh, Kampala, Lord, just continue to bless it. Give them wisdom and, and uh, the leadership wisdom in leading that church and, and serving your people there, Lord, and pray that you're glorified at that church. The same thing we pray in our church, Lord, that we can bring glory to your name in all that we do. Uh, Father, I do want to lift up... Uh, Danielle and Samantha, Lord, as they were in a car accident, uh, they're here tonight, Lord, but we just pray for quick healing for them. God, just touch their bodies and Samantha's knees, help them to get better, uh, Danielle's neck, and just pray for that. And I want to lift up uh, Aubrey and Finley, Lord. Aubrey seems to be doing a little bit better. Finley still has the, the ventilator. I just pray that you would uh, just catch Finley up to, to Aubrey and that they would just get stronger and stronger. Thank you, Lord, for the just the advancements and the health that, the, that you've given them, Lord, and continue just to bless them, we pray. And Father, just your blessing upon this night we seek, Lord, that you'd give us not only information but application that uh, would uh, just change us, as Kenny prayed, Lord. Change us and draw us closer to you, Lord, and we'd be conformed to your image and your likeness in all that we do. Bless our time together, we pray. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So far in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet's message has been primarily to Jerusalem and Judah. But God also called Jeremiah to represent him internationally to the nation surrounding Judah. If you recall, when God first called Jeremiah, he told him in Jeremiah 1.5, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. See, not just Judah. Judah. He then told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25.15, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nation to whom I send you to drink it. Listen, God loves all people. He has a plan for all the nations. And he's grieved when nations sin. And every nation in this world is accountable to God, not just Judah and Israel. And it's a reminder for us that we need to be praying for our nation as a whole, especially as we see we get ourselves closer to the election and things that are going on and, and uh, the, the two sides that are, seem to be dividing and, and just be praying, Lord, help us to be a nation that honors you and all that we do. Well, here in chapters really 46 through 51, Jeremiah records God's judgment on uh, of, sin, uh, of ten nations in particular. Now, we already looked at last week at Egypt in chapter 46, the Philistines in chapter 47, Moab in chapter 48. Now we're going to see tonight God's judgment on Ammon, Edom, Damascus, and Elam in chapter 49, and Babylon in chapter 50, and then we'll continue Babylon in 51 as we continue the following next time together. 
Chapter 49, though, begins with God's judgment against the Ammonites. Now, Ammon, if you recall, was the son of Lot's youngest daughter, and his descendants turned into a very violent people, and, and Ammon was always, always hostile towards Israel. And so judgment is coming against them. Look at verse 1 of chapter 49. We read, Against the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in the cities? Milcom or, or Moloch really was the false god of the Ammonites. Ammon had tried to annex Israel. They had taken the region of Gad. And really today Ammon is, is embodied in the word Ammon. The, the ancient Ammonites are modern day Jordanians. Gad was the land of the east of the bank of the Jordan River. It belonged to the Hebrews for a thousand years when the Ammonites tried to take possession. Today, the contested territory is the west bank of the Jordan River, whereas in 586 B.C., it was the east bank. So it kind of switched around a little bit. Verse 2, we go on. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war in Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall be a desolate mound, and her villages shall be burned with fire, then Israel shall take possession of his inheritance, says the Lord. Well, O Hezbon, for Ai is plundered. Now, Hezbon is, is, the, is the ancient capital of the Amorites uh, uh, of King Sihon. Jeremiah goes on. Cry, you daughters of Rabbah, gird yourselves with sackcloth, lament and run to and fro by the walls, for Milcom shall go into captivity with his priests and his princes together. Why do you boast in the valleys, your flowing valley, O backsliding daughter, who trusted in her treasure, saying, Who will come against me? It's interesting that God calls Ammon a backsliding daughter. As a nation, though, it had departed from the faith of its forefather, Lot, who really worshipped the true God. So that would make Edom a, a backsliding daughter. And then the Lord asked, why do you boast in all that you have and think that no one else will, no one will come against you? They felt safe because they had stuff. You know, they, they, they weren't worried about invading armies because they trusted in their stuff. They trusted, trusted in their treasures. So the Lord says in verse 5, Behold, I will bring fear upon you, said the Lord God of hosts. For all those who are around you, you shall be driven out, everyone headlong, and no one will gather those who wander off. They are trusting in their riches, and yet the Lord says, You'll be afraid, your riches will not save you, you'll be driven out. I think of the story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, about the man who came to Jesus, telling Jesus that, uh, to tell his brother to divide his, you know, the inheritance with him. Lord, you know, my brother, he needs to give me half of the inheritance. and you, We need you to, to fix this, Lord, uh, to arbitrate over this dispute between the brothers and, and over money. Jesus didn't want to have any part of it. He pointed out that that man's priority was all wrong. And then Jesus went on to tell the parable of the rich man in Luke 12, 16-20. Listen to what it says there. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and grill, build greater and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? This man was only worried about his, about his treasures. He could see with his own eyes and, and he felt safe and secure because of all the stuff he has. And he, he's focusing his whole life towards having treasures in his life only to find out that when he achieved it, it was all gone. Bottom line is, we, you know, we can't take it with us. You know, there's no U-Hauls going in, into heaven. We, we leave it all behind. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6:19, Do not lay for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
but lay up your lay up yourselves uh, treasures on earth rather. <laughs> uh, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here, the Ammonite people, they're, they're trusting in their treasures. They're, they're trusting in what they have. And it's all going to be gone. You shall be driven out, everyone headlong, and no one will gather those who wander off. Verse 6 goes on, But afterwards I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. Now, verse 7 launches God's judgment against Edom. Now, Edom, or Esau, was the brother of Israel or Jacob. Though Esau failed to inherit the covenant of God made with Abraham and Isaac, God still made Esau... Uh, and his descendants, a great nation. whole chapter, Genesis 36, is devoted to the chiefs or kings of Edom. Now, Edom and Israel, they've not been very friendly down through the years towards each other. Edom had a, become a great nation, for God had said that he would make it a great nation out of Esau, but now judgment is coming. Look at verse 7. Against Edom, thus is the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more than Teman. Now, Teman was the name of Esau's grandsons. This was a, a chief city in Edom named after him. And the Lord says, His wisdom no more in Teman, his counsel, has counsel perished from the prudent, has the wisdom vanished. So whereas the, the Ammonites were wealthy, they're trusting, trusting in their, their wealth, the Edomites, you know, they're trusting in their wisdom. And apparently they, they had men of wisdom there. In fact, Genesis thirty six thirty three names one of their kings Jobab, possibly the wise man we know as, as Job. Now, we know that Obadiah and Jeremiah have prophecies that seem to have come from quoting each other, and so does Jeremiah and Isaiah. We can see, we see similar prophecies in there, but all that is just evidence that the same God is the author of their messages. Why do I say that? Well, listen to Obadiah chapter 1, verse 8. This is in the New Living Translation. At that time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. From the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. So it just backs it up. God's scripture backing up that, that Edom was going to be destroyed. Judgment was coming. Not a wise person would be left. Now apparently at some point in time that they lost all their wisdom. They, 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 they lost their mind. I mean, how do we get our mind back? How do we get our wisdom back when, when we lose it? I think of the story about a, a man named Bob who went to a psychiatrist. Doc, he says, I've got trouble. Every time I get into bed, I think there's somebody under it. I get under the bed, I think there's somebody on top of it. You know, I get under, up, and under, over, up, and over, and it helped me. Doc, I'm going crazy. I get no sleep at all. Calm down, the doctor said. Just put yourself in my hands for one year. Come to me three times a week, and I'll cure your fears. Well, how much do you charge? $100 per visit. I'll sleep on it, said Bob. Six months later, the doctor met Bob on the street. Why didn't you ever come to see me again? Asked the psychiatrist. For 100 bucks a visit, he said, a friend cured me for free. Is that so? How? He told me to cut the legs off of my bed. Actually, getting your wisdom back, your mind back, is a little more complicated than that. Job, again, I think he might have been this Edomite named Jobab, tells us about wisdom in Job twenty-eight twenty-eight. He says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Solomon, one of the, one of the wisest men on, on earth, uh, told us where to start in Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, there's wisdom that begins in fearing the Lord, fearing God. And when you stop honoring God, then you kind of you lose perspective in life. I've said this many times, sin makes you stupid. 
Getting your mind back, gaining wisdom back involves getting things right with God. It's going back to the cross and what Jesus has done for us. Paul talks about how there's a difference between what the world considers wise and what God considers wise. He says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is a power of God. To those who don't know Jesus, you know, they can't see anything wise about Jesus dying on the cross, but to us it's the power of God to salvation. The cross is how we come to God. The cross is through the cross that Jesus paid for our sins. Through the cross, we come back to God and say, God, I need your forgiveness. God, I need to get back with you. See, though the world considers Christianity and the cross foolish, it's in fact the very heart of the wisdom of God. And wisdom comes when we get our hearts right with God. Well, the Ammonites trusted in their riches. The Edomites trusted in their wisdom and their strongholds. Lord says, that's not going to help you. Look at verse 8. Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. Now, Dedan was a city far to the south of Edom in the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula. He goes on, For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time that I will punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, would they not destroy until they have enough? And so, both the gleaners and the thieves, he says here, you know, when they come in, they, they would leave some behind. But that's not how God is going to treat Esau. It's going to be completely wiped out. Verse 10. But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places. And he shall not be able to hide himself. His descendants are plundered. His brethren and his neighbors. And he is no more. Leave your fatherless children. I will preserve them alive. And let your widows trust me. For thus says the Lord. Behold those whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunk. And are you the one who will altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. But you shall surely drink of it. Edom would have to drink of the cup of, the, of God's judgment because of her pride and rebellion against the Lord. Verse 13. For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse. And all its cities shall be perpetual wastes. I have heard a message from the Lord. An ambassador has been sent to the nations. Gather together, come against her, and rise up to battle. For indeed, I will make you small among nations, despised among men. Your fierceness has deceived you. The pride of your heart, O you dwell in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord. Again, the Ammonites trusted in their riches, but Edom trusted in their strongholds, their fortification. Edom was located southwest of the Dead Sea. One of her chief cities was the ancient stronghold of Petra. And the city, I mean, it was considered uh, impenetrable because uh, it was really uh, the, the narrow way uh, it was, was a path mile long. It was so narrow, only one soldier, soldier can enter in at a time. This made it very easy to defend. An army could pick off one soldier one at a time uh, as they're coming through. I think if you've ever watched Indiana Jones and, and the Last Crusade, the Holy Grail was found in the cave of the Valley of the Crescent Moon. The cave is actually the, the facade of the, of the ancient library in, in Petra. Yet verse 17 predicts Edom also will be an astonishment. Everyone who goes by it will be astonished and will hiss at all its plagues. In other words, uh, despite its natural advantages, the rock city won't be able to protect the Edomites from the coming invasion of the Babylonians. And Petra remains abandoned to this day. And over the years, they've tried to, you know, attempt to be made to colonize Petra, but to no avail. So God says, says here in verse 18, As in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, no one shall remain there. 
nor shall a son of man dwell in it. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong. But I will suddenly make him run away from her. And who is the chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? So Edom will run from its invaders, but to no avail because they're really running away from God. And you can't run from God. Ask Jonah about that. Verse 20. Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Edom. And his purpose is that he has proposed against the inhabitants of Teman. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their dwelling places desolate with them. The earth shakes at the noise of their fall. At the cry, its noise is heard at the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly like the eagle and spread his wings over Basra. The heart of the mighty man of Edom in that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. All this to say, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, would also conquer the Edomites. But notice something different here. There's no promise of a future hope given to Edom as was given to Egypt and Moab and Ammon. And I believe it's because of Edom's pride. You know, pride always brings you down. Pride was the decisive blow against Satan, against Lucifer, and he, he had no second chance. Pride keeps many people away from a relationship with the Lord. If the pride continues, there are no second chances after death. So the Lord is saying you're being judged uh, for your pride as well. Well, next we see the judgment against Damascus, which should really interest us, especially in the days in which we're living in. And we hear a lot about Syria and Damascus being in the news and and, uh, really the heart of the, the war in the Middle East. And it's always in the news. Look at verse 23. Against Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are shamed, for they have heard bad news. They are faint-hearted. There is trouble on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Now, the, the city of Hamath, or, or Hama, today is a city of 110 miles north of Damascus, and Arpad was 90 miles northwest of Damascus. Today, it's an archaeological site, though this prophecy is against the entire nation of Syria. I'll go on in verse 24. Damascus has grown feeble. She turns to flee and fear has seized her. Anguish and sorrow have taken her like a woman in labor. Why is the city of praise not deserted, the city of my joy? Therefore, her young men shall fall in her streets, and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Now, Ben is the Hebrew word for son, and Hadad was a Syrian idol, so the Syrian dynasty was called the sons of Hadad. Here in Jeremiah, the Lord said that in that day, Damascus, It's going to be consumed. Now we know in Isaiah chapter 17, we read this, verse 1, The burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. Well, we know Damascus is still there today. And given that Damascus claims to be the world's oldest city, this is a significant prediction. Today, five million people live in uh, metro Damascus. Yet Isaiah predicts Damascus will one day cease from being a city. Jeremiah adds that God will kindle a fire in its walls. Damascus will burn in God's judgment. Now, could this be related to what's happening today in Syria? Could an attack on Damascus maybe hit some chemical weapon storage place and make Damascus uninhabitable? Certainly possible. You know, every time I see things uh, heating up over there, I think, man, I I look at Damascus, see what's going on with, with, with Damascus there. Well, Jeremiah continues to judge the nations of his day. Verse 28. Against Kedar, against the kingdoms of Hazar, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, shall strike. 
Thus says the Lord, Arise, go up to Kedar, and devastate the men of the east. Their tents and their flocks they shall take away. They shall take for themselves their curtains, all their vessels and their camels, and they shall cry out to them. Fear is on every side. Flee, get far away. Dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hazor, says the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has taken counsel against you and has conceived a plan against you. Arise, go up to the wealthy nation that dwells securely, says the Lord, which has neither gates nor bars, dwelling alone. Their camels shall be for booty and the multitude of their cattle for plunder. I will scatter to all winds those in the farthest corners and I will bring the calamity from all its sides, says the Lord. Hazor shall be a dwelling for jackals, a desolation forever. No one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. At the time of Jeremiah, these nomadic Arabian tribes trusted in their re- remoteness. They, hey, hey, we're hiding. They're not going to catch us. Their evasive ability, their mobility. They thought, how can Nebuchadnezzar hit a moving target? Yeah, you know, what they don't realize is they weren't fighting against Babylon. They weren't fighting against Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, again, Jeremiah's pointing out their conflict is with God. And notice God says he'll bring their calamity from all its sides. So these nomads, they were surrounded. Fight one more nation to judge. Verse 34, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, now the people of, of, of Elam were 200 miles east of Babylon and Persia, what is today the country of Iran, which is interesting. God has been speaking to the Arab nations around Jerusalem, but Elam is an Arab. They were Persian. Elam was the Assyrians when they attacked Israel and they assisted the Babylonians in their attack on Jerusalem. So now with that, as a background, verse 35, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the foremost of their might. Against Elam I will bring the, the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them towards all those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them, my fierce anger, says the Lord. And I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. I will set my throne in Elam and I will destroy from there the king and the princes, says the Lord. But it shall come to pass in the latter days I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. So this prophecy was given early in the reign of King Zedekiah, about 597 B.C. God promised to break the bow of Elam, which he called the mainstay of their might. Uh, this is significant because Eli, the Elamites were known for their archery skills. Now, what was also interesting is that this judgment against Elam was not fulfilled at that time in history. The prophecy speaks of the people being driven off the land and scattered in all the world, that really has never happened in recorded history. It also speaks of, of the God of Israel as setting his throne in Elam, which has never happened as well. So this prophecy then awaits fulfillment. Now, as I said already, Elam was east of Babylon in what today is the country of Iran. And according to one source, the actual location of Elam would be the very northern end of the Persian Gulf and down along the west coast of Iran. Today, one of the main sections of ancient Elam would include the the, the Bushirir province with the capital city of Bushirir. Now, maybe you've heard that name before. It's a little bit interesting. It's actually ground zero for Iran's nuclear ambitions. It has a nuclear power plant 11 miles southeast of the city. It's thought that Iran would use this plant to help build their, their nuclear weapons to destroy Israel and threaten our nation as well. Israel has, has you know, stated more than one, once that it will not allow Iran to become a nuclear power, and it's very possible this is just speculation that, that Israel will attack Iran to destroy this nuclear complex 
at, at Bushiriyah. It's possible if Iran comes through with one of its threats against the U.S., that the U.S. could, could attack and destroy this nuclear complex at Bushir. It's all possible that World War III could, could start over this Bushir nuclear plant. And the reason I bring that up is because, again, ancient Islam has become present-day Iran and a focal point in dealing with Israel. And it fits in directly into God's prophetic plan as the world heads towards a great tribulation period. I mean, between Damascus in Syria and the proxy war going on with Iran and the threats for war with Iran raging right now at the U.S., at any given moment we could see the fulfillment of these prophecies that we're, we're reading about. When I read these things, that, you know, it kind of reminds me of waiting for Christmas and getting to Thanksgiving. You know, when Thanksgiving hits, you know, Christmas is just right around the corner. Jesus says, when you see these things start to happen, look up for your redemption is near. I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, that brings us to chapter 50. Let's sum up what's taken place so far. We read of God's judgment on the nations and why Egypt trusted in idols. Moab in materialism and pride. Ammon trusted in opportunism. Edom trusted in its fortifications. The tribes of Arabia, the, you know, in their isolation and their mobility. Elam in its skill with the bow and its weaponry. Yet all those nations fell to the Babylonians. Numerous times in Jeremiah, God speaks of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument of judgment. He even calls the pagan king the servant of Yahweh. But the fact that God used the Babylonians did not mean that he approved of everything they did. In fact, after he uses the Babylonians to judge, he in turn is now ready to judge them. Now, we won't get to all of it this evening, but in these last three chapters of Jeremiah, God gives his prophet Jeremiah amazing predictions concerning the fall of Babylon. And something else we need to consider as well, that oftentimes when it comes to Bible prophecy, that there is what's called a dual nature to them. That, that is, many of the prophecies have an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment embedded in the same passage. Now, maybe if you, it's kind of like this, if maybe you're laying down on the grass and you're looking up at a tree, you know, that's up above you, you know, and, and you see the blue sky and you see the tops of the tree, but you really can't tell how far apart those limbs are because you're looking up from the bottom up. And, and so, so, I mean, they could be separated 20, 30 feet apart. But it looks like they're stacked upon each other. And you see the, the cross uh, leaves and limbs. And that's what it's like to study Bible prophecy. The Old Testament, the, the prophets were given glimpses into the future. But they were all under this, this tree looking up and seeing, the, seeing it from that perspective. They saw, you know, events, but found it hard to distinguish what they were seeing was, that was two similar events, but are just one. And if they were looking at two events, they had a difficult time gauging the distance separated them on the timeline. Is it ten years? Is it a thousand years? So that's what we really see in, in the scenario in Jeremiah 50 and 51. The prophet sees two defeats of the city of Babylon. One, I believe, is historical. Another one is still future. But the, the, the details are intertwined through the prophetic picture. So with that said, look at verse 1 of chapter 50. The word of the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Yet some of the people might have thought that, that Jeremiah was nothing but a spy for Babylon and, and his message was you know, against the kings of Judah and, and to warn them about how they're going to be conquered by Babylon. But we see Jeremiah, I mean, he's an equal opportunity prophet. And, and again, remember, in the previous four chapters, God has been using Babylon to judge the nations, but now he's judging Babylon. As the old saying goes, what, what goes around comes around, and we'll see Babylon finally gets what's coming to them. 
The prophecy was given at least 65 years before Babylon would be conquered by the Persians. But here we read in verse 2, Declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard, proclaim, do not conceal it, say, Babylon is taken, Baal is shamed, Merodach is broken in pieces, her idols are humiliated, her images are broken in pieces. Baal and, and Merodach were chief gods, the idols of the ancient Babylonians. Uh, Baal was the god of the wind and the storms. Merodach was also known in secular history as, the, as Marduk or the bull calf of the sun god. Uh, these are the idols that the Babylonians worshipped and revered. And now, the Lord says, they're going to be shattered into pieces. Verse 3. For out of the north a nation shall come up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. Here's a good example of the prophecy and the dual nature of it. The Persians would conquer Babylon in 539 B.C., but there are going to be parts of this prophecy that, that don't seem to fit. For example, the city wasn't wiped out in 539 B.C. It was fought over many times, over many centuries, and conquered by many, many, including Alexander the Great. In fact, there was still a city there in Jesus' day. So there's parts of this prophecy that have not yet been fulfilled. Does that mean it's wrong? Does that mean that God doesn't keep his word? No, it just means that it hasn't happened yet. Uh, We'll look at it in a little bit, but Revelation 17 and 18 speaks about another Babylon that will be wiped out. It seems that some of the prophecies yet future, again referring to the second coming. Look at verse 4. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, with continual weeping they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion, with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. Remember, the shepherds were the religious leaders, the priests and the false prophets of the day that, that led Judah astray that sold them the lie, you know, that, that Babylon would not conquer them, that they were doing fine. Jeremiah goes on in verse 7. All who found them have devoured them, and their adversaries said, We have not offended, because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. See, the conquerors, Babylon itself knew they were acting on behalf of God as they destroyed Jerusalem. The judgment of Judah had come because of Judah had forgotten the covenant with God. They turned their back on God. Yet after the Babylonian captivity, there was something different in Judah. Idolatry among the Jews was virtually wiped out while they were still in captivity in Babylon. Never again would they be given over to idol worship. Now, sometimes God allows us to go through difficult times because we've gone astray, because we've, we've uh, you know, maybe turned our back on Him over something and, 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 and there's a difficulty and, and through difficulties and struggles, he, he seeks to bring us back. I think of the story of the prodigal son and what it took for him to come to the end of his rope and finally say, even the servants of my father are treated better than the way my life is going right now. I need to return to my father. Whatever it takes to get us back to that place of, of, of turning from our sin and, and get our relationship restored with Jesus Christ, God's going to do it. Hebrews twelve eleven tells us, now No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God uses chastisement as he did with the, with, with the people of Judah. You know, we get spanked from time to time to get our attention. God wants to produce that righteousness in us and cause us to do the right things. 
Now, not all difficult times are a result of being, you know, chastised. We don't always know why we go through difficult times, but, but if you've gone astray and you're in trouble now, uh, I tell you, God will use whatever it takes to get you to come back to Him. So the Lord says in verse 8, Move from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be like the rams before the flocks. For behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be captured. Their arrows shall be like those of an expert warrior. None shall return in vain. And Chaldea shall become a plunder. All who plunder her shall be satisfied, says the Lord, because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage, because you have grown fat like a heifer, threshing grain, and you bellow like bulls. See, God used Babylon to judge the Jews, but Babylon never learned the lesson themselves. As a nation, they displeased the Lord. And rather than understand the sin that brought on God's judgment, they replicated Judah's sins, and then they boasted in, in their victories. It's like they're saying, God, we're so glad that you used us to judge, to judge those people, and yet they're doing the same thing. You can't expect judgment is not going to come. So as a result, a coalition of great nations will gather in the north and launch an all-out assault against prideful Babylon. Look at verse 12. Your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She who bore you shall be ashamed. Behold, the least of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes by Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at her plagues. So the Lord said Babylon is going to be completely destroyed, made uninhabitable. Verse, verse 14. Put yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shout against her all around. She's given her hand. Her foundations have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her as she has done. So do to her. What goes around comes around. Now, I hope that you recognize, again, from looking at, at the background uh, a few minutes ago, that there's some problems in Jeremiah's account of the fall of the city of Babel. First, he says that as a result of the invasion, she will no longer be inhabited. And second, her walls will be toppled. Again, neither of these scenarios happened when the Persians conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. The city continued to be inhabited for centuries. In fact, it served as the capital of Cyrus and the Persian Empire. Even, again, the Greek... Uh, General Alexander the Great made Babel an important city in his empire some 200 years later. And neither did the walls fall as a result of Persia's triumph over Babylon. Remember, the invaders came in under the walls through the dried up riverbed. Now, over time, the, the sands have, have, well, have deteriorated the walls and weathered away, but an invader never destroyed them. Again, the implication here is that the Jeremiah's prophecy is, is a dual fulfillment prophecy against Babylon. Only a portion of the prophecy was accomplished by the Medo-Persian invasion. And there, there's still elements that are left unfulfilled. Verse 16. Cut off the sower from Babylon, and him who handles the sickle at harvest time. For fear of the oppressing sword, everyone shall turn to his own people, and everyone shall flee to his own land. Israel is like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria devoured him. Now, at last, this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon has broken his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, and I have punished the king of, as I have punished the king of Assyria. The Assyrians were conquered by Babylon, and now God will send his army to defeat Babylon. Verse 19. But I will bring back Israel to his home, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. 
In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found, for I will pardon those whom I preserve. Again, you know, Israel learned their lesson against idol worship. Here, uh, this is is wonderful. In that day, people try to dig up sins from Israel's past, but they shall not be found. I love that it says that. Because that tells me that God blots out our sins. When God forgives, it's not only freely, but but it's completely. Such a great thing to know that our sins have been forgiven. David wrote this in Psalm 32, 1-5. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hid. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God's complete forgiveness. Last night at Men's Study, we were talking about, you know, we were talking about being raised Roman Catholic and having to go to a priest in order to receive the, the forgiveness of your sin. What an awful burden that really is to put on uh, these, these men called priests. First of all, they don't have the authority to forgive sins. Only God does. But the burden he would have to live with hearing all those sins day after day, week after week. It's no wonder there's so much sin in the Roman church. David here says, speaking of the Lord, I acknowledge my sin to you, to the Lord, and my iniquity I have not hid. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Go right to the Lord. Say, Lord, I've sinned. You get completely forgiven. God blots out our sin. When God forgives, it's complete. So the Lord says he won't remember their sin. Verse 21. He says, go up against the land of Merthaim. It's another name for Babylon. It means double rebellion. He says, go up against it and against the inhabitants of, of Pecod waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord. And do according to all that I have commanded you. The sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware. You've been found and also caught because you have contended against the Lord. The Lord has opened his armory and has brought out the weapons of his indignation. For this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Think about that. The Lord opened up his armory. I mean, he takes off the gloves, so to speak. He unleashes the, the weapons of his indignation. What are the weapons of, of, his, of his indignation, of his anger? What, what are the weapons in his armory? Smart bombs, stealth fighters, meteors from heaven? Whatever they are, they're, they're being targeted on Babylon. Verse 26. Come against her from the farthest border, open her storehouses, cast her up as heaps of ruin, and destroy her utterly, that nothing of her be left. Babylon's ancient adversaries, the Persians, were Middle Eastern neighbors, not far from the farthest, not from the from the farthest border. Again, this is looking towards something future, perhaps even more global in nature. Verse twenty-seven: Slay all her bulls, let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them! For the day has come, the time of their punishment. The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of His temple. Call together the archers against Babylon, all you who bend the bow and camp against it all around. Let none of them escape. Repay her according to her work, according to all she has done to her, due to her, for she has been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. It's interesting. In verse 
29, the Hebrew word for bow there could literally be translated launcher. It's a weapon used in long-range attacks. So, so the point being is just don't, when you read the text, you don't rule out modern weaponry as, as, a, as a modern fulfillment, as a, as a future fulfillment of this. Verse 30. Therefore her young men shall fall in the streets, and all her men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord. Behold, I'm against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time that I will punish you. The most proud shall stumble and fall, and no one will raise them up. I will kindle a fire in the cities, and it will devour all around him. Now, God is so against the haughty. James tells us in James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride, remember, was, was a downfall of, of Moab, the reason for its judgment. Pride was a downfall of Lucifer. Pride will be our downfall if we don't guard against it. Verse 33, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel were oppressed along with the children of Judah. All who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is His name. He will thoroughly plead their case that He may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. Looking at this figuratively, these verses make a powerful point. Babylon has always been a type of the, the lust of the world. And these lusts can get a, a vice grip on a person's life. That's why sin is called a vice. It refuses to let go. That Jeremiah here says that our Redeemer is stronger. Verse 35. A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against inhabitants of Babylon and against the princes and her wise men. A sword is against the soothsayers and they will be fools. A sword is against her mighty men and they will be dismayed. A sword is against their horses, against their chariots, and against all the mixed peoples who are in their midst, and they will become like women. A sword is against their treasures, and they will be robbed. A drought is against their waters, and they will be dried up. For it is a land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. Therefore the wild desert beast shall dwell there with the jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. He's saying that, that the demise of Sodom was nothing like the fall of Babel. God sent fire from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It incinerated the city. Whereas Babylon, though, was de- declined over centuries. Interesting also when the Persians conquered Babylon, God used drought, not fire. The rivers dried up. Again, affirming it here that we have two different views here going on. Again, Revelation 17 and 18 describe events still future to us at the end of the Great Tribulation period, prior to Jesus' second coming. A Babylon will be destroyed in the same manner as the demise of Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen to Revelation 18, verse 15 through 18. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? Describing, really, a fate that Babylon's going to have that was similar to Sodom. It'll go up in fire and smoke. Perhaps the city will be nuked. Many Bible scholars believe the future Babylon that gets smoked won't be a literal Babylon in Iraq, but a city that takes its pagan mantle. Perhaps it's Rome, certainly 
You know, we see that. Uh, some have said it's the United States. It's possible that uh, the historic city of Babylon may yet be rebuilt. It's interesting that Saddam Hussein, uh, before he was disposed, 62 miles south of Baghdad, he was re-erecting the ancient ruins. Nebuchadnezzar's palace and the Marduk Gate. He even had plans to rebuild the Tower of Babel. So it could be that a future leader decides to, to resume this project and Babylon rises from the ruins. But it's going to be destroyed. Verse 41. Behold, a people shall come from the north and a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. Now again, this could be speaking of an ancient, of the ancient coalition that rallied together to take down Babel. It sounds more global to me, like a final showdown. Verse 42, they shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and shall not show mercy. The voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride on horses, set in array like a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them, and his hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him, pangs as of a woman in childbirth. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong. But I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is the chosen man that I may point over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? I think this is describing Cyrus who would conquer Babylon as a lion coming out of the floodplain to attack its prey. But again, it could also be describing someone else, the future aspect of it. Finally, verses 45 and 46. Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Babylon and his purposes that he has proposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he will make their dwelling place desolate with them. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth trembles and the cry is heard among the nations. Well, we will finish this up next time together. But I, I like the interesting this is the Lord says, hear the counsel of the Lord. I think that's good for us. Hear the counsel of the Lord. Hear what the Lord is saying here. What it's saying is that God's will is going to be accomplished. God's purposes will be fulfilled. God will do what he says he will do. And uh, we just need to be uh, in that place looking for his return and, and living for him with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I know, Lord, we covered a lot of material this evening, Lord, and, and we recognize there's a, a lot of judgment that has been going on. And, Lord, we recognize that it's a judgment that was deserved. Your judgment is sure. Lord, we do pray for our nation. Lord, we pray for revival in our country. We pray, Lord, that we would turn from the evilness of of abortion, turn from the evilness of, of just the immorality that's going on here, Lord, and that our nation would turn to you. Lord, we recognize that you, you will judge the nations. We've seen it here. We know it's going to happen. We pray, Lord, for our own lives, Lord, that we would stay close to you in these last days, that we would not veer to the left or to the right, Lord, but we would heed your counsel, be men and women of your word, that we might bring glory to you in all that we do in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.